Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome an unlikely prisoner. That is the title of my guest's new book today. Uh, his name is Sean Turnell. And for those of you that may not recognize who this incredible man is, uh, I'm very excited to actually unbox his story, as you guys are no doubt going to learn more about his incredible journey that he's been on, being stuck 650 days in Myanmar's most notorious prisons. Uh, Sean, I normally, at, at this time, I normally switch the introduction over to my guests and I ask them, instead of me gushing about who you are and what you do, I thought it would be best coming from your mouth <laughs> about who you are, what you do, and why do you do it. So, Sean, please take it away. Well, thanks very much, Jay. It's a real pleasure to uh, appear on this podcast. Um, well, yeah, so my name's Sean Turnell. Um, I was a professor of economics at Macquarie University in Sydney and very much a sort of mild-mannered academic for a lot of my life. Um, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney but spent 30 years at Macquarie Uni and the Reserve Bank before that. But, yeah, basically an economist, academic, the sort of person who never got into trouble about anything. Um, I quite literally have never even received a, a traffic violation. So, um, but... It ended up in uh, uh, in February 2021 that I was arrested by uh, Burma's military junta, which had just taken power in a coup a few days earlier. I ended up being arrested by that junta, spending 650 days in some of the most notorious prisons in Southeast Asia, uh, in Myanmar, and um, got back in November 2022, uh, have written a book about it all called An Unlikely Prisoner, which I think captures the whole thing, uh, again, of, you know, uh, yeah, someone who, the, the least likely person who would end up in an Asian prison, and, and that's what the book story is, and, and I guess that's, um, yeah, why people may or may not know my name these days. Well, Sean, it's a pleasure and an honour to have you on the show, so thank you so much for your time, and for those people that are watching the video, I'm holding up Sean's book here. An unlikely prisoner. It's available November fourteenth, but this episode will go live before it comes out, so that will give people a chance to actually pre-order the book. We all know authors' pre-orders are very, very important. Uh, Sean, you spent six hundred and fifty days in some of Myanmar's most notorious prisons. They thought you were a spy. How in the world could they think you, of all people, are a spy? Well, again, that's also extremely unlikely. Um, and, and on one account, uh, I actually said to one of the prison guards, I said, look, I'm not Jason Bourne. 
<laughs> um, but I didn't see McCutt on the ice. Um, yeah, so the basis of it was, so I was over there in Myanmar as an economic advisor uh, to Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the leader of Myanmar's civilian government. And I'd known her for about 20 years. So my academic work had increasingly concentrated on Burma. So uh, Burma or Myanmar, by the way, it goes by both of those names. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was quite well known to uh, the civilian government that, that had taken power under her uh, leadership in, in 2016. And I've been invited over there, uh, as I say, to being their advisor. But but what that meant, of course, by being her advisor meant that I saw all sorts of government documents. And in fact, I worked with the government and I worked as something of a liaison as well between that civilian government and governments like Australia's and America's and with the World Bank and the IMF and all that. So i Obviously, I got, you know, a lot of data, a lot of documents I used to help them with and all of that. But then when the coup took place, the military, who hated uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and, and that civilian government, they were looking for excuses. Um, and when I was there and stuck there, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to, um, they thought, well, hang on, he's got all these documents. He must be a spy, uh, even though, as I say, it was really just part of my job being over there to to help that civilian government bring about economic reform. So, yeah, so it was basically my, my possession of documents, correspondence between myself and Suu Kyi, government ministers and so on. They, they used that as a, as a way of trying to paint a story that I was this sort of master spy in the background pulling all the strings. And, um, yeah, that that's the case they, that they tried to make. I've got a couple of questions coming from that. First being, is Australia friendly with Myanmar? Well, we were. Um, and again, my, my job, because I should add that I was there on behalf of the Australian government. It was part of an aid program of Australia to Myanmar. So, yeah, very much a, a friend. Um, Australia was really supportive of Myanmar's civilian government because Myanmar is one of those countries, unfortunately, that's been ruled by the military for most of its modern history. But in 2015, um, Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy came into government, and this was a time of incredible hope. And and um, so Australia was unbelievably supportive. We provided lots of aid, uh, and um, you know, again, as I say, Australia supported me to go over there, help the Myanmar government get through. So we we were very friendly. But when the military took over, they, they knew Australia wouldn't be happy, America wouldn't be happy, the UK, just about everywhere basically, except for Russia. Uh, wasn't happy. So, yeah, so now the relationship, of course, between Australia and the and the military junta that currently rules the place is very, very strained, uh, as it is, again, just about every country and this junta, with the possible exception, as I mentioned, of Russia. And had you been over there several times previously or was this your first time going over there? No, I'd been over many times. Um, so I'd first got to know Aung San Suu Kyi about 20 years ago. Uh, and went to see her soon after she was released from house arrest in the uh, late 2000s, about 2010. Um, then I was there over there all the time and then permanently over there from 2016 when, when I had this advisory role. So the, the country was very, very familiar to me. Uh, I felt extremely comfortable there, knew lots of people, felt safe there and so on. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and then the coup arrived, of course, which proved that the place wasn't as safe as I thought. For those people that may not be familiar with Myanmar's political structure and, and system, 
uh, what does it look like and what does their economic situation look like as well? Why do they need your support? Well, so Myanmar is one of the poorest countries in the world uh, and by a big margin, the poorest country in mainland Southeast Asia. So we're all used to the story these days, you know, the Asian tigers and the incredible growth and even the, you know, incredible trajectory of countries like Vietnam and so on these days. And, and of course, China and so on as well. And Myanmar is the country that missed out. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's incredibly poor, um, mainly because of really bad economic policies and governance from uh, the military regimes that have ruled them for such a long time. Yeah, so very, very poor place. Um, with a lot to catch up on, which means, though, that there's incredible potential because, you know, just with the the most simple policies, good policies put in place, the country could really catch up. So I was there to help them do that, and we were making incredible progress from 2016, which, again, just makes the coup so unfortunate because, you know, we're really beginning to turn the corner. Is there a lot of coups that happen in Myanmar, or is this one... Was that one expected to actually take place? Bit of both, in the <laughs> sense that there has been a lot of coups. Um, and this one, even though it took me by surprise, the actual coup itself, um, in a sense, the idea that there would be a coup in Myanmar, in some ways, is not a surprise, even though, as I say, this specific timing did take me by surprise. So the first of them took place way back in about 1960, and then there were multiple ones since. And the military is sort of ruled off and on all the way through since the very early 1960s. And when we say military coup, for those people like that may have this uh, image in their brain from the movies, is it anything like that? Like the military comes in, starts shooting up people, or is it so- somewhat tame? Uh, well, no, it pretty much is like that, actually. <laughs> um, in, in this particular occasion, the military at first, the first few days... It was sort of fairly peaceful, um, and the population came out dramatically and in large numbers to protest. Uh, and then just a couple of weeks in, the military started shooting. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they, they, they actually hesitated a bit at first, uh, and there was a lot of hope, actually, that the coup might have been reversed after those first few days. But then the military resorted back to old form uh, and just started shooting people. So, um yeah, so a, a bit expected, um, and the brutality, to be honest, is is what people have come to be come to expect from Myanmar's military as well. Far out. So the level of corruption in Myanmar is quite severe, I guess you could say. Absolutely, mate. Exceedingly high, um, and it's one of the the secrets, in a sense, behind my arrest too, because. Um, as one of the economic reformers, one of the big things we were trying to do was push against corruption. Um, you know, we, we understood fully that you couldn't eliminate it, and et cetera. It was too ingrained for that. But some of the economic reforms, opening the economy up, making things more competitive, were starting to rub up against old monopolistic interests and so on. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting, Jay, that you mentioned corruption because that, that, that was a very key component in why they came after someone like me. It's an interesting thing seeing another country like Myanmar, who's the poorest in the Asian um, sector, right? Seeing them being the most corrupt almost. It's like, why Why is that the case? Is it because they've got nothing to lose almost, do you reckon? Pretty much, right? Um, and the military, I think, just have this presumption that they should have control 
and that they should be able to commandeer most of the resources. So, you know, we would often try and enter into debate with them about what good economics meant. But for them, economics was just about how much can we get? It really didn't get any further than that. Is economics supposed to be simple or hard? It, um, I think it's fairly simple. <laughs> I, I think economists might try to make it complex so that, you know, you know, everyone will hire us and all that sort of thing. Um, but it is pretty simple. Um, you know, you get some really basic things right with re- respect to policies and things like that. Uh, and, you know, really it's about opening things up to as much competition as possible, uh, securing property rights, which means that, you know, people work hard and innovate and come up with ideas and new products and all that, that, that they get to have the the fruits of their labour and their and their ideas and all that. And, you know, and then governments sort of step back a little bit. But in countries like Myanmar, where the military is in control, the military want to take, want a piece of the pie um, across the board. And and I guess, you know, in terms of economic reform, what we were trying to do is take away some of that pie. You know, we, we were trying to say, well, look, hang on, maybe you shouldn't get so much. Um, and that, of course, upset them quite a bit. I know Professor Ian Harper, who's also an economist from Melbourne, yeah. and I believe he sat on the board, um, the RBA director board, I think it is, the one that makes yep. decisions for our country and Reserve Bank and things of that nature. You did some work for the Reserve Bank, is that correct? I did, mate. My, my career began at the world, uh, at the Reserve Bank. Uh, back in the early 80s, which again dates me terribly. Um, and I worked there at a time, it's hard to believe now, when there weren't even any computers. Um, there was a typing pool and things like that, which, you know, just seems very bizarre. But yeah, so for the first eight years of my career, I was an economist at the Reserve Bank uh, before deciding to become an academic. So that you've got a lot of knowledge, a lot of insight into, say, the past versus the present. And I'm curious, like having seen probably the worst economy of the worst with the Myanmar's economy, how does it stack up against Australia's economy at the moment with everything that's inflation and raising house prices? I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you as as an economist, of course. Yeah, well, it doesn't compare at all, uh, Jay. Um, <laughs> Australia is in many ways, you know, for all of our problems and the problems you mentioned are certainly there. Um, we're actually one of the best economies in the world. You know, it's it's astonishing. Um, and even whoever's in government, in the global scheme of things, they're all pretty good and pretty mild and all the rest of it. So um, I, I used to hold Australia up as an example all the time, particularly to a country like Myanmar, because Myanmar actually, funnily enough, should be a rich country because it's got lots of natural resources uh, and it should be able to use that bounty to create a really good economy. And But it doesn't because of all the things we mentioned, corruption, military rule, etc. But Australia is probably the best example in the world of a country with abundant natural resources but who's used those natural resources in ways to create a fantastic economy. Um, because, of course, a lot. I'm sure everyone listening and watching this will be aware of an expression called the resources curse. Um, and it's just that expression for countries that have a lot of natural resources can often, in a funny way, make the economy worse because uh, wealth is easily extracted, easily stolen, and it can actually sponsor bad government because, in a sense, governments don't need to do very much. All they need to be there is just be there and, and steal, basically. Um, but Australia is an extraordinary example of a country that 
has doesn't allow that to happen, where we've actually used our natural resource bounty to earn revenues, but we've turned those revenues into nation building, institution building, good education, good healthcare, all the things that you need for a good economy. Um, so, yeah, so Australia does pretty well. And, you know, even our inflation problem at the moment, that's a problem of, in a sense, things are, you know, just going pretty well because it means there's, there's lots of demand. And with lots of supply constraints, you know, demand greater than supply pushes prices up. But, yeah, in so many ways, Australia's problems, again, compared to just about any other country in the world, our problems are pretty good and, and pretty manageable. And, yeah, to a country like Myanmar, not even close. And But but we do, I think, offer just a wonderful example. Um, and I used to use Australia all the time and say, look, this is what's possible. I often say that we are incredibly blessed to be in Australia of all countries because it could be so much worse. I know the the rate of inflation. I myself, I'm 27 years old, looking to get into the housing market. It's yeah. incredibly tough and difficult at the moment to even do that. Yeah. And I'm seeing everything else, just, you know, cost of living, all these things on the rise. I used to be in real estate. So I keep an eye on, on the property market all the time, seeing what it's doing. And it's just looking like things are getting further and further away. But yes, like you said, compared to countries like Myanmar, we've got nothing really to, to complain too much about. But having said that, as an economist and looking at Australia's natural resources, what we've got at our beck and call to actually use to fix inflation, how would you go about making the future, I guess, better for someone like myself, the younger generation, like to make it a little bit easier for us um, and the ones that are working nonstop? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a good point, mate. So, so you know, having said that, that Australia, again, by world standards, is, is incredibly successful and all that, doesn't mean we don't have problems. Um, and in, in particular, uh, allowing people full access to this prosperous economy is is an issue, you know, and by full access, um, what we mean is particularly the property market. So we, we've got to be very careful that this bounty done, doesn't end up being skewed, you know, to the baby boomer generation, etc. who are already in the real estate story. So, yeah, so, so there does need to be some changes there. Part of it is on the supply side, just making sure that, that there's sufficient land and, and, and uh, sufficient access to that land. I mean, sometimes you want parts of, you know, cities, et cetera, not to be zoned uh, for house building and so on. But you also want to have a look at various restrictions um, in inner suburbs, particularly. We always have to be uh, mindful of the, the whole NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard scenario and, and making sure that existing holders of real estate don't exclude others. So, so you know, we, we do need to look at things like zoning, in, in particularly, in, you know, cities like Sydney and so on. Um Issues like transportation, making sure, you know, that as the suburbs move further and further out from the centre, that, again, people have access to the city and, and where they need to work and all that. Um, yeah, so the, the, there's a whole bunch of issues and, and then issues to do with finance, um, making sure that the, the banking system is fully competitive and all that and that the banks are not just creaming off the top. And, and so, yeah, all sorts of issues to do with affordability and, and making sure that people have access to that bounty that I mentioned. And and it is important because, you know, if people feel they're denied the prosperity of a country like Australia, then that can undermine that prosperity because people feel that they don't have a stake in the system and will agitate for change. So 
even in a country like Australia, we've got to be forever vigilant uh, to make sure that there's economic justice uh, as well as economic growth. Were you scared at all when the coup took place? Uh, I was. I, I was very worried. Um, in retrospect, I wasn't worried enough um, because at first I thought, you know, it gave me a big fright. So, you know, the military intelligence suddenly arrived at my hotel uh, and arrested me and so on. And, you know, I was worried. It was all pretty scary and all that. Um, but I thought I would probably be released quite quickly. I thought that they just wanted to put a scare in me um, and then that they would release me. And, and if I'd known that they were going to keep me for, you know, nearly two years, I would have been uh, much more terrified. Um but yeah, certainly wasn't pleasant, mate. And and many of the experiences subsequently, and quite quickly actually after arrest, but then afterwards, uh, were, were were pretty terrifying. So um, yeah, wasn't a good experience. But but I I sort of consoled myself all the time with thinking that I was going to be released. But yeah, as I say, that that didn't turn out to be true for an awful long time. And this took place right as the rest of the world was being locked down in COVID. That's right, mate. And COVID was, of course, a very strong factor in all of this because when, when the coup took place, it took place on the 1st of uh, February 2021. I was arrested on the 6th of February 2021. But in that five-day gap, I, I I was trying to get out of the country. Um, I knew that the military would probably try and come after me and use me as an excuse um, to go after some of the others uh, within the government as well. So I was trying to get out, but people will remember, I think, back at those really, um, you know, deep COVID times, there were no flights. The only flights that were there were sort of emergency uh, repatriation flights. And so I, I was desperately trying to get a seat on a plane and couldn't get it. So, um, yeah, so COVID was very much part of the story. How did that make you feel when you couldn't get a flight? Yeah, pretty worried. Um, uh, but again, I... I wasn't too worried because I thought, well, okay, look, even if the military is to come after me, they, they, you know, it doesn't make any sense for them to keep me. It's just going to cause them international trouble. Um, but, you know, I, I misjudged that. I, I do remember, actually, I, I, in fact, it's only just, it's a great question you've asked, Jay, because it's only just occurred to me that I actually, you know, I did get a flight, uh, a flight to London. I, I was going to be taken from Yangon, the, the big port city in Myanmar, all the way to London. I remember... I, I, the worst I was thinking was that I'd have to quarantine in London for a couple of weeks. Um, but as it turned out, the military got me before I could get on that flight. But I, I'd quite forgotten that I actually did get on get onto a flight. But it, it, it was going to leave, I think, later the very day that they arrested me. So of all the people on, on the flight, were there other Australians on that flight too? Uh, I think there would have been. So I, I, I never got to the flight, of course, but uh, but but there would have been. Um, in fact, and when when I was being arrested, I was held in the lobby of the uh, hotel in Yangon for a long time because the Australian ambassador had arrived to sort of help me, and it meant that um, it, it sort of stopped the police from dragging me off to the jail straight away. Um, but but as I'm waiting in the lobby, as other foreigners saw what was happening to me, and and I was quite a well known figure there. Um, all these other people got out. Um, and, and as I'm waiting there in the lobby with the police who were arresting me, all these other foreigners came trooping through, including some Australians, and most of them would have been on their way to the airport. And and I think, actually, my arrest sent a bit of a fright through the international community in Myanmar. And there's a lot of people who, you know, were probably going to hang around and just see where things went. But 
uh, after they arrested me, I think a lot of people thought, okay, we've got to get out. And the Australian, we've got an Australian embassy there, right? That's right, eh? Yeah, and the ambassador. uh, So the first thing I did when uh, I was being arrested was get in touch with the Australian embassy and the ambassador came over uh, and and that slowed the process, which was good. Um, And so, so they couldn't drag me off straight away. So we spent about three hours just hanging around the lobby of the hotel before I was taken away. But uh, And it sort of put the Myanmar's military on notice that my arrest, at least, was not going unnoticed. Um, in the end, I'm, I'm not sure that it stopped them very much because, you know, again, they kept me for nearly two years and a lot of ill treatment followed and all that. But but it did, yeah, at least it told them that, that you know, yeah, as I say, that, that told them that someone was going to be watching. What was going through your mind during that moment for you? A lot of things. Um, I was worried for myself, of course, but I was worried about my wife back home and and my dad and my sister and my family, my daughter, all, you know, a whole bunch of people. I was worried that they would be worried because in some ways it's almost better to be the person in a situation like that because as horrible as things are, you know what's happening to you, you know, whereas people back home... They don't know that and, and you know, th- their anxiety levels become really high. So I remember worrying a lot about the other people who would be worrying about me. Yeah. And you couldn't get in touch with them? I could for a bit, but then the regime stole my well, took my phone, confiscated the phone. Um, there was a funny moment where when I was very first arrested, uh, I was actually on the phone to the BBC, the BBC uh, World Service. Um had had rung me uh, to find out what was happening just by coincidence, and and uh, I I you know done some work for the BBC uh, before, so that they knew me and all that. And I was talking to the BBC live on air uh, at the moment I was being arrested, and I had to say to the to the BBC broadcast, they said, "Look, I, I'm sorry, I have to hang up. I'm being arrested," um, which was yeah caused a bit of a sensation at the time. I can imagine, like the journalist probably or the um the. The news anchor probably would have been like, "What? That's <laughs> what right. What's going on? What do we do now?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Poor, poor Sean. My goodness. So, what happened after that? So, you're in the hotel lobby. They did they take you to prison straight after that, or were you processed? And yeah, so I, I I was taken off to a place that in the book and elsewhere I just called the Bock, um, which was a tiny interrogation room in a police station directly outside the walls of the big prison in Yangon, which goes by the wonderful name of Insane Prison, mm-hmm. um, spelled I-N-S-E-I-N, but nonetheless pronounced insane, and that describes it pretty much. Um, but, yeah, police station just outside the walls of that, I was put into a room that was about the size of a shipping container, uh, one of those 20-foot equivalent units, I think they call them, um, and uh, it had only a tiny slit window that the police could observe me in, a metal chair was the only furniture in the middle of this thing, bolted to the concrete floor. Um, and attached to this metal chair were chains, um, ankle chains and, and wrist chains. And, and that was it, by the way, furniture. And I was kept in that room for two months um, before being moved into the broader prison. So probably the worst time of all was that very first two months where I was kept in complete isolation in the box and, um, uh, I did have one call in the middle of it with the Australian Embassy and, and then to my wife and so on. Um, but other than that, the whole two months thing was just spelled on my own, spent on my own, uh, and the only visitors were the interrogators. 
how often would they come in and interrogate you? Random, completely random, which I think was part of the tactic. So some days they wouldn't come at all. Other days they would come twice a day. Other days they would come three or four times during the day and sometimes in the middle of the night, um, you know, one, two in the morning, etc., and and wake me up. And I, I was just on lying on the concrete floor anyway, so the conditions were pretty awful. But but they would just come in and and just start arbitrarily shouting questions, often really stupid questions and insane sort of questions, just to I think put me off and all that. So um, yeah, so that that first two months was pretty bad. Um, but then being moved into into the prison was pretty bad as well because insane prison was built in the nineteenth century and it looks every bit the horrible sort of 19th century prison would look like, you know, um, iron bars, concrete, filthy concrete cells, all the rest of it, and a very imposing guard house where you enter and, and, you know, just going across the threshold then, and I was handcuffed and had, you know, leg irons on and all the rest of it. Um, Yeah, it was just a horrifying moment. So for someone that may not be aware or familiar what it may be like to be in solitary confinement and then have people come in and interrogate you at random times like how do you cope with that yeah it's, it's really tough um because you you're just 100 percent vulnerable um you're totally at the whim of of the interrogators um they, they treated me better than they did burmese prisoners but they still ill treated me um occasional punches and kicks and one guy you know pretended to set fire to my hair and things like that um so yeah so pretty awful um i i sort of coped in in some ways the worst the worst times are almost waiting for it to happen um and i had a number of strategies to deal with that i i used my mind to try and turn my mind off things um so I, you know, told many people the story of trying to remember all the U.S. presidents in chronological order, reciting that, um, remembering all the U.S. states, um, remembering uh, Australian prime ministers in in order, um, and then just simply, you know, pacing up and down the box and counting and things like that. You, uh, things like that, sort of get get your mind off some of the horrible things around you. Um, yeah, but so those were just some of the, the sort of basic um, survival strategies. Did that sort of come naturally to you or did, were you sort of prepared somewhat from things that you had learned in your in your past from watching movies, hearing stories, that sort yeah, of thing? Sure, sure did. You know, in fact, um, my misspent teenage years being addicted to prisoner of war escape stories, the greatest state uh, escape told it all this sort of stuff helped me immeasurably um and um it, it's funny you know i i my survival strategy was not in any way sort of new ideas about psychology or anything like that it was sort of old-fashioned notions of you know um, not, not on my part daring do but you know how people had survived in the second world war and you know stories of weary dunlop and changi and you know all that sort of stuff um very much old-fashioned sort of just resilience um, was what I tried to draw on. Old-fashioned resilience. That's something I haven't heard of for a while, yeah, <laughs> to be honest with you. Like when, yeah, you no, indeed. when you hear about the term resilience, what does that actually mean to you? Uh, well, I think it just means going on, you know, regardless of, of what's happening around you. Um, the other thing I should mention right, was just the idea 
that I knew that I had incredible support outside, um, led by my wife, my dad, my sister, my daughter, all the family. Um, I knew they were behind me and I knew I had to get through for them. Um, so that's part of it as well, knowing the incredible efforts that they were all taking, but all sorts of people in Australia as well. Um, you know, one of the things that came out of it, you know, many horrible things, but many upsides as well. And one of them, just the basic humanity, generosity of people of Australia, um, Burmese prisoners who were, who were, you know, subsequently became part of as well, the general prison population, incredibly supportive. So, um, yeah, all of those things really helpful as well. So resilience, I think, is partly um, within you and the stories that you tell yourself. And again, that's where those old stories helped. But also it's the assistance of other people. You know, I, I don't want to suggest that this is a solitary endeavour. Um, it's very much with the help of people, whether they're with you at the time or whether they're thousands of miles away, but just knowing that they're there for you. I think that, that that's a really strong part of it as well. Yeah. What were your family doing outside? Did you know? Uh, I did. Well, well, I got to know when eventually I was allowed to talk to my wife. Um, so, yeah, just raising up a ruckus, basically, <laughs> um, uh, at every level, you know, through social media, through the you know, traditional media, uh, but then advocating with politicians, the highest levels of government in Australia, the US, the UK, everywhere. Um, uh, again, le- led by my wife, who did extraordinary things. She would agitate. Um, uh, she she was born in Vietnam, so she took the campaign to the Vietnamese government, who advocated on my behalf. Um, the Americans all interceded. Uh, my wife wrote letters to the dictator of Myanmar and, and his wife. The, the dictator's wife and basically appealed to her just to say, look, you know, if, if this was your husband, you'd be doing all that you could from one wife to another, please release my husband, things like that, you know. Um, but then, yeah, all, all sorts of friends rallied to the cause. The people at Macquarie Uni and all the universities actually in Australia uh, wrote petitions. Uh, there were people petitioning the parliament. Um, yeah, just a huge groundswell of support, which – you know, for the rest of my days, I will be forever grateful to. Did any of the politicians listen? They did, yeah. And the Australian government was was good. Um, you know, uh, I know in, in you know other cases there've been failures and so on. In my case, that they were pretty good um, and really just there. And and then in other ways as well, apart from listening, just in terms of trying to get me released. Uh, then in getting stuff to me, so my my wife cooked a lot of food, uh, like bake bakery products which australia then assisted in getting them to me through the diplomatic pouch from canberra to rangoon uh and then to me in the prison um so yeah so the australian government again in particularly in support uh were, were great as well uh but but I, I i must mention to the the u.s government the uk government and in particular prince charles and then king charles uh were incredibly supportive too so i, I had a lot of you know very powerful people at my back yeah, especially King Charles. I mean, did he write a letter to the the dictator? He sure did, and he wrote letters to my wife, and he was just incredibly supportive. And then uh, we, we, you know, one of the great pleasures that we had since my release was to go and see him at Windsor Castle just a week or so before the coronation, and uh, uh, he was wonderful. He was just so uh, incredibly incredible, welcoming and humble. Uh, sounds odd to say, but... Um, yeah, and so he he was fantastic, but it extended into you know 
very senior politicians in the US as well as Australia as well. So, um, yeah, all, all in all, the, the, the political uh, class actually performed well, I think, in this situation. Sounds like your wife stirred up a hornet's nest. That's yes, right. Alan. That's right. <laughs> She, she's a very powerful woman, and um, somebody in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs told me that however much pushback they got from Myanmar's military junta, the one pushback they really didn't want was from Ha. So my wife, Ha Vu, and they said, yeah, the, the thing they never wanted to hear on any particular day throughout all of this was that Ha is not happy. Those are the words <laughs> they never wanted to hear. <laughs> I mean, if you see a photo of your wife, ah, I mean, she looks like one of the most loveliest ladies right. in on the face of the earth. But the thing is, you don't want to mess with her because <laughs> she has a, no, has a tiger right. inside of her, especially for those that she loves. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for those people that need to know about what prison life is like, what goes on sort of the day-to-day situation? Yeah, well, it's pretty awful. Uh, I mean, it's just mind-numbing boredom is is one thing, uh, and and in conditions that are just awful, and and just always that um, that anxiety that you have constantly because nothing is under your control. So you know the fashionable word these days of agency. Well, in this situation, you have no agency at all. Um, so so you're always feeling vulnerable, always being anxious. The food is terrible. You know, I they would deliver food twice a day. Uh, in a plastic bucket, um, and it wasn't even a clean bucket or anything. Um, and uh, and yeah, so the, the food's awful. Everything is just awful. The, the cell was com- uh, like in the, this old insane prison that I mentioned earlier, just completely open to the elements. So it was rats and spiders and centipedes and and I don't mean friendly little centipedes, but really awful big stinging sort of centipedes. Um, scorpions and all that were just coming in in and out of the cell at will. Um, the cells themselves were, you know, incredibly grimy. The floor was often wet, uh, mildewed walls and, you know, deeply unhealthy places. So, yeah, horrible environment um, in which, you know, you just try and get through. Um, once I was with other prisoners and other political prisoners, particularly in Myanmar, things were much better because you're able to support each other uh, and they were incredibly supportive of me. Um, so, yeah, so all of that helps. Um and then finally, when I was able to get deliveries, I, I mentioned food being delivered to me, but I was also able to get deliveries of books, and and that helped a lot um, because you know all, all of my life I've been a voracious reader, and as soon as I got the books, things just improved dramatically because um, I, I have a very vivid imagination, and so I'm able to fully immerse into a book and almost not quite, but almost uh, make the rest of the world disappear. Yeah, transport yourself out of the world that you're currently in into the world that you're actually reading. I do the exact same That's thing. Right. Like yeah, if I get indeed. if I get stuck into a book, like there's no distracting me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. That's my philosophy, at least. Indeed. Yep. Yeah. Nothing like getting lost in a good book, I say. Exactly, um, mate. And 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 many of the books, you know, they, they were just the sort of books uh, to do that. So one of the most notable ones was Lord of the Rings, of course, which everyone will be familiar with. Um, and uh, another real surprise package mate, was a, a book called Cultural Amnesia written by Clive James. Um, I'm sure many listeners and viewers will remember Clive James, a, a well-known Australian performer, but a great writer, uh, a little bit sort of uh, underestimated, I think, on that front. And he wrote this wonderful book, 
not not too far before he died, which sort of summed up all the lessons of his life and and really a story of the 20th century. Um, yeah, this book called Cultural Amnesia, which was just great. Um, and so I learned a lot from that as well. Mm, I was speaking to uh, Dr. Carly Moore Gilbert, who oh. was another political prisoner, uh, and her story was just astounding as well. Like the thing... Jay- yeah. Jay, I, I must tell you on that, like, yes. And one of the books was Kylie's. Um, ah. And in fact, the whole story was wonderful. On one of the phone calls, so this is about a year in, my wife suddenly said to me, she said, um, I've received a call from Kylie from Melbourne. And, and of course, in my phone calls with my wife, we always had to speak in code because I, I was never allowed to, you know, she couldn't tell me things that were going on relating to my case and all sorts of things. And so, so my wife just said, yeah, that, I, that she got a call from Kylie from Melbourne who wanted to offer her support. And I, at first I didn't know who this was. And I thought, you know, Kylie Minogue? Um, and I thought, why would Kylie Minogue be involved in my case? And then I suddenly, I, I suddenly remembered that, wait a minute, this lady from Melbourne who'd been detained by the Iranians was called Kylie. And anyway, my wife ended up being able to send Kylie's book to me. And even more remarkably, uh, the uh, Myanmar authorities, I guess they didn't know what sort of book it was. It, it got through to me. And that was an incredibly helpful book as well. Um, and I took a lot of the lessons from Kylie of how she got through. Um, and then also, you know, right to the present, um, as soon as I got out, I've been in touch with Kylie and she's an incredible person, actually incredibly supportive of me, you know, as I say, while I was a prisoner, but since I've got back as well to coping back with life so yeah i'm i'm fascinated then jay that you've spoken to her as well because she's yeah just fantastic person i asked her this question and i was actually surprised by her answer about claiming victimhood and she said that she doesn't have that mindset at all which i was Mm -hmm. quite quite impressed by because it's so easy in that moment to claim victimhood and to say oh woe is me like life is yep. doom and gloom and it's oppressive and um, just to complain all the time. And I think there's so many young people out there in society that have got it incredibly good and they're still claiming to be victims. But yet you got someone like Kylie and I'm going to ask you the same question. Like, did you proclaim to be a victim at all once, Sean, or why didn't you? No, never. Um, so I 100% agree with Kylie on this. Um, and I think the trouble is with being a victim is that it robs you of agency. Yeah. Right? So it just means, you know, we've mentioned that term again and again. Um, and so whilst you would, you would feel you didn't have agency, you spent the time trying to create it. Um, and I mentioned the books and, and exercise, pacing, all that sort of stuff, trying to stay on top of things, thinking clearly, uh, et cetera, and, and not surrendering. Uh, so I think identifying as a victim immediately then puts you at the um, at the whim of, of your captors. So, yeah, so I think it's a really important point. Uh, for me too, you know, uh, I knew I was part of a bigger struggle. Um, uh, again, you know, the, this military regime in Burma or Myanmar is just terrible. You know, they're awful. And it's good to be against them, you know, and, and I took pride in that. I, I took pride in the fact that they arrested me because, in a sense, that, that meant that they were frightened of me. Um, you know, it might have been that my situation was scary, but I liked the idea that I that, that I frightened them. Um, the military regime, by the way, is very upset with me again now uh, because I've been quite outspoken and all that. And that gives me very great pleasure as well. 
Um, so, yes, I completely agree with Kylie. I think, um, yeah, it's important not, not to see yourself as a victim. Again, not, not for any other purpose but for yourself because uh, it, it gives you agency and that gives you energy uh, and, you know, can allow you to do things. What do you think about the young people today claiming to be victim and being all oppressed and everything like that? Well, I, I think it's a real problem. Um, it's with some real anxiety that I, I look around the West at the moment, to be honest. I, I, I worry terribly this whole victim culture, cancel culture and all that, safe spaces, you know, unsafe speech and all that. I mean, it's just, it, it's absurd, quite frankly. Um, partly I blame my own cohort, to be honest, I of academics. Mm. I think the, yeah. the whole shift of academia um towards some of this stuff, uh, trigger warnings, all that, uh, to me, uh, profoundly disturbing um, and doing immense damage, I think. So, um, yeah, I, I do really worry about the whole drift of academia in the, this sort of way of encouraging, I think, people to think themselves as victims. Um, uh, you know, issues of identity politics and all the rest of it. Again, I, I'm so worried about it because... Um, you know, I have a very simple notion that, that we're all human beings with uh, inalienable rights, um, regardless of, of our background and all the rest of it. And, and I, it worries me terribly, actually, that the, um, the direction, again, that higher education has taken, but, but other broad uh, areas of society as well. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that there's plenty of blame to go around on that front. So, you know, to that extent... I feel a little bit sorry for the younger generation, actually, and, and, and what they've been dished up. I do too, and I, I honestly wish I had you as my lecturer or my professor when I was at Macquarie Uni, <laughs> Sean, <laughs> because the lecturers that I got, honestly, I don't mean to speak bad about you know the Macquarie staff, but I went yeah. to a um, critical thinking lecture and it wasn't right. really teaching me how to think. It was teaching me what right. to think, right. and I saw a great problem with that because you have one person that was really outspoken about a certain thing, about a certain yeah. subject matter, and you had the vast majority of people who would just pile on uh, yeah. against the poor person. I'd just be like, hang on a minute, stop for a second, take a deep step back, let's breathe, let's allow that person their right to freedom of speech too and not just pile onto them because that person is actually a critical thinker and you guys are just following along with everything the lecturer is actually saying. It's just not... It's not right, in my it, in my opinion. No, it's not right, and and of course it recalls that scene in Monty Python, right, the life <laughs> of Brian, where you know he declares to them that they're all individuals, and they all recite back, "Yes, we're all individuals," until there's a lone voice that says, "I'm not," <laughs> and so thus, thus identifying who exactly was the individual, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I miss no, the old a, days, to be honest with you, Sean. Indeed. Even though, even <laughs> though I'm young. And I know yeah, that I'm exactly. young. Yeah. Yeah. I really do miss the old times. I mean, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Believers Comedian John Cleese and John Anderson. And John yeah. Cleese, he goes, all the Wokies running around thinking that they can talk everybody down and say that they're right and you're wrong. He goes, it's nonsense. And he goes, you know you're in trouble when they're going after the comedians and it's like comedy is no longer funny anymore to them and it's like they're claiming they got to shut you down and it's sad to see what's happening with with our very own government too like they're shutting down freedom of speech and i'm just i'm very much like you i'm worried 
and I'm also fearful for the next generation of young people that are allowing this to happen um, yep. because we should be in a democratic Western country. We shouldn't be like Myanmar or any of those other countries that suppress all of that stuff and don't allow you to express your right to say things. We may not like what you have to say. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to say it, so to speak. I totally agree, Jane. Again, my, my experience is, is, you know, is experiencing where that can go, the extremities of that. Um, and the whole experience, I, I guess, underlines for me the importance of freedom of speech and, and freedom more broadly. I'm more committed than ever before to the notion of freedom. You know, I, I just at the, the, the basic default right that we have i think is to be free and then there are other rights that come after that but but that's the foundational one yeah amen to that my friend so i wanted to ask you about how you were able to find a sense of i mean we've spoken about how you're able to get sort of a more resilient mind but what you're in there for 650 days did you know if you're ever going to get out um, I always thought that I would at some point, um, but but that that day kept on disappearing into the distance. Of course, um, so I I began to worry, and I think on that front, the worst time was uh, just after I was sentenced, which is about a year and a half in. Um, there that that would have been a logical place for me to be expelled at that point as well, which is that the long history of Myanmar was that people were often given sentences and then expelled from the country. So. So at that moment, a year and a half in, given a sentence that would have kept me there for another three years after that, I started to worry at that point that I was going to be there for the full three years after that. So, um, yeah, so I, I I was quite worried about that. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that was the worst time at, at thinking that, that I was going to be there for a really long time. And we ever put on death row at all? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So um, right, right after the sentencing, um, I was then put in solitary confinement back in insane prison down in Yangon. And I was put in an area which physically was a better area, it was sort of like these individual cells in the middle of sort of a sort of tree area. Um, so the, the physical environment was, was a little bit better, but it was very isolating because it was uh, in, yeah, it was uh, you know, solitary confinement. But I noticed when I was there, I suddenly realised where I was, that it was death row, where, where this, you know, so the physical environment was a little bit better, uh, but it was solitary confinement and it was death row. And I only noticed it because I suddenly saw that the other prisoners in these little isolated cells were wearing orange outfits and the standard prison outfit was blue. And I thought, wow, you know, why are these prisoners wearing orange? And then it suddenly occurred to me, and I remembered that that's the colour of death row. And so that 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 was pretty horrible for, because for the last two months I was there, I was in this, this place uh, amongst people who were, you know, condemned in that way, um, who I might add, though, were extraordinarily generous and, again, nice to me. So, you know, here we've got people with less than nothing uh, with a death sentence on them. Um, and when, when they saw me and they knew who I was, they would send me their bread ration. So they, they used to get a special bread ration because they were on death row, and they sent it to me on the basis they thought, oh, well, look, here's Sean, this poor Australian guy. Maybe he's getting sick of rice. Let's send him some bread. I mean, you know, I 
I remember at the time, and I'm amazed at it still. I mean, how do you begin to thank or appreciate people who, you know, again, of such extraordinary generosity? So um, I guess the only good thing about that was when I finally was released, I, I was hopefully, I think, the some of the uh, books and other things that I had in, in my soul went, went, went to them. I'm somewhat hopeful anyway. But, um, yeah, just, just extraordinary. So that probably would have become a really stark reality. I mean, you're in prison, but then being transferred to death row of all things. That, like, that's right. Not yeah, knowing. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty horrible moment. Eh? Um, it was made more horrible because um, a death sentence was, was something Myanmar has had in place for a long time. But for about 50 years, it had never been acted upon. Uh, but then about two months before I arrived in this area of death row, they had begun, started executing prisoners again. Um, so so it really added to the sort of um, stress and anxiety of being in that place. It's un- unreal, really is, that um, this actually happened to you. I guess, mm. how did you get out? Like... Yeah, well, very unexpectedly. So finally, what I'd always been waiting upon, which was some sort of amnesty from Myanmar's regime, because, uh, and I should just add here, traditionally, again, it's what they did with high-profile foreigners. What, what, what they tended to do was keep them, charge them, sentence them, and then deport them. Uh, they kept me a bit longer than that. Uh, but finally, an amnesty arrived in November 2022. But very unexpectedly, um, my wife and I had sort of begun to give up hope. Um, and in fact, the day before I was released, we it was one of our phone call days, and we both agreed that I would not be released before Christmas that year, uh, and that I would, you know, I was still going to be there for many more months. Um, but yeah, so totally unexpectedly, on the 17th of November 2022, prison guards suddenly appeared in my cell and said, Sean, Good news, you're going home. Um, and I remember just being totally dumbstruck. I, I really didn't know what to do. The The only reaction I had to him was to say, look, please tell me you're not kidding. And he said, no, 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 I'm not. But you've only got 10 minutes. You've got to pack up your stuff and go. Um, and I remember just, yeah, again, just being completely at a loss as to what to do. I didn't know, should I pack? Should I not? Should I just leave everything? And then I remember that my wife said, please don't bring any clothes or anything like that home. So I ended up leaving just about everything there. Um, and then, yeah, as I say, 10 minutes later, I'm being escorted out of the prison to great cheers and so on of the other political prisoners, and which was a great moment. Um, but I remained anxious, actually, all the way through until I got on a plane back to Australia because um, Myanmar's military also have another tradition, but mostly the local prisoners, where they sometimes give them extra charges just as they're taking them out the door. They often put other charges on them, put them back into the prison. So I was terrified all the way, you know, as I say, until that plane left the tarmac, um, I, I was still pretty anxious, to be honest. Who was responsible for making it happen that you got released? Well, I think the international community more broadly. Um, if it wasn't for that pressure, I don't think the military regime in uh, Myanmar w- would have released me. Um, and the proof of that is just simply what they've done to the locals. So people like Aung San Suu Kyi, many of the people I work with in that civilian government, they, they all remain in the prison. Um, so so I think that's the proof of what, what wouldn't have happened in the absence of, of you know, international advocacy. So, 
yeah, so it's really the campaigns in Australia and around the world that, that got me released. And then what was it like for you to step foot on home soil again? Just wonderful. I mean, it was so good. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm a Sydney cider, um, but one of the odd things was that there was, and again, because COVID had just ended, and so the, the planes were absolutely chock-a-block. And so uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, the only flight they could get me back to Australia quickly, and they wanted to get me back quickly, which was good, but the only flight they could get me back on was one that went from uh, Yangon to Bangkok and Bangkok to Melbourne. So, so my initial arrival in Sydney was Melbourne, most disconcerting. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, <laughs> no, I, I love I, that. <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't play with my all, all my Melbourne friends. Um, uh, but, but it was a great homecoming in Melbourne because Harv, my wife, had flown down that morning uh, from Sydney to Melbourne, so she was there to greet me. And then, in a wonderful gesture, the Prime Minister left his plane available to take me back up to Sydney. So the very last leg of the journey was on the Prime Minister's, uh, the, the small jet that the Prime Minister uses, which the, apparently they call the shark. Um, and uh, so on, on that jet, we were taken back to Sydney and it was just, you know, just extraordinary. So, and then arriving back in Sydney, it was a beautiful day and the sun was there and, and yeah, my dad, my daughter, my sister, nephews, everyone was there to greet me and it was, uh, you know, just fantastic. It was one of those... You know, really wonderful Australia days that that you know has no uh, replication anywhere around the world. The, the intense blue skies, for instance, it's one of the first things you know. You think, oh wow, you know this is this is a paradise. Was this when Albo was prime minister, or was Scott Morrison? Yeah, no. So Albo was prime minister by then. Um, he he wasn't there to greet me because he, he was at a ASEAN uh, ASEAN Plus Two or whatever those meetings are. Uh, with Asian leaders in Bangkok. So I actually spoke to him in Bangkok whilst in transit, um, and we had a wonderful conversation, actually, and he was extremely moved and and uh, and then uh, was moved again when he told the story to the Australian press. Uh, so, yeah, great conversation with him, wonderful conversation with Penny Wong as well. Um, and, uh, and just to keep it bipartisan, great conversations later on with people like Simon Birmingham, the... Um, the, the coalition spokesman for foreign affairs uh, and with Peter Dutton and other people as well. So again, I think as an entire political class in Australia, uh, the, you know, the differences just vanished and we're all Australians. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was just good all around. I think politics aside, you just got to realize the humanity. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so, mate. And, and the values that unite us, um, which sounds trite sometimes, but in situations like mine, it, it actually becomes real. You know, it's not just a, an empty statement. You know, there are really deep values and, and they're on display every yeah. now and then. <laughs> some some people nowadays, they tend to forget that, which I think is really sad. They tend to focus more on the one-sidedness or the right. person's politics and that oftentimes dictates their decision on doing things, which is just absolutely ludicrous if you ask me. Like yeah. just grow up, have a conversation with the person. They are a human being after all. That's yeah. what makes, that's what counts at the end of the day. Absolutely. That's what you should look yeah. at and focus on. Like just, yeah, that's the way I think it should should be uh, in today's yeah. world. But alas, <laughs> can't. Can't have everything, can we, Sean? No, no, indeed, mate. I'm hundred percent agreement, but but also in agreement that unfortunately we we don't have it. But yeah, it'd be something, certainly something to wish for.
and then you decided to write a book. That's like, right. Eh? So, yeah. yeah. So part of the whole story was to write a book. I, I knew I always would. Um, in fact, I told my fellow political prisoners that I would. Um, and I said to one of the really important things I had to get from them was permission to use their names. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to write a book for one of the first things I'm going to do. Um, I'd like to use your names, but I know that that could place you in danger. So feel free to tell me not to. Um, and uh, all of them wanted their names in, um, so w- w- which was fine. And then, you know, to sort of lighten the mood, you know, when I asked them this, I said, look, and the other question you have to answer is, who do you want to play you in the movie? <laughs> so, uh, which uh and of course that they they all claimed fairly ludicrous um <laughs> actors to play to play them um and i said to them look i'll agree to anything as long as as long as you allow brad pitt to play play me in the movie <laughs> then, then you can have anyone um so um yeah so and and then the book was was good to write um quite quick uh, as an academic I'm you know used to writing things but uh, but you know as an academic writing is always a slow process you know of, in, of footnoting and evidence yeah. shifting and you know all, all, all that sort of stuff um, but you know when, when you write from your head and from your heart and from your experiences it's uh, it's a much quicker process and um, so I yeah I, I really enjoyed it a lot so who do you want to play you in the in your movie? Well, I'll still go for Brad Pitt, but but <laughs> as as I said in the book, and as I said to the other political prisoners, I really worry that that they might cast Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> he's not so bad. I love Danny. Well, he's not bad. That's true, but you know, I'd rather Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, Brad Pitt's a lot better. <laughs> yep. Hopefully, Danny's not listening to this and going, Jared, come on, Indeed. Jay, what are you doing? <laughs> Indeed. Um. But, Sean, you seem like a very down-to-earth, humble person, which I really do appreciate. And it's like, as the title of your book indicates, a very unlikely prisoner would not expect you, of all people, to be held in a jail, of all things. It seems like the very last place to to be housing you. I mean, but um, I'm enormously grateful for, for you and being able to share your story with, with my audience today. Uh, where do you want people to get a copy of your book? Uh, well, in any good bookstore, as they as they famously say, right? So the physical book is, yeah, will be available all through Australia in the bookstores from November 14. Um, you can get a Kindle version and an audio version as well. And the audio version, in fact, is read by me. Um, so, uh, and my wife does uh her own voice to her own letters in the book as well so um yeah so there's an audio one but um yeah but certainly in all the local bookstores uh it should be available my final question for you sean is what do you love the most about yourself and your story oh that's an interesting one um Probably that res- word resilience, which is overused. No, no, you know what? No, scratch that one. Um, I think optimism uh, mm. above all. Um, yeah, I think that that that's better because all along I, I really, I mean, again, it sounds sort of trite, but I really did try and look on the bright side of things and I visualised and imagined life back in Australia and how good that would be. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say that, just keeping a focus on that things will get better um yeah optimism i love that answer john thank you so much for your time your wisdom your advice and your story and for joining me today on the story box podcast 
Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure, right? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 